So good morning, one and all. It's good to be back in Austin. This is probably why I'm distracted today, because we were gone for a bit. We were in uh, Chicago for a week. Uh, we drove up to the city, I'll call it the city, because I think by now it's earned the right to be called the city. It's so unbelievably big and problematic and impossible and logistically nightmarish and all those things. But we drove up to the city to drop off two of our five daughters at university last week. So um, I hear, I'm told, Sam, that some people love Chicago. I don't know if this is true. Some people love Chicago, but some of you also love cilantro, and some of you love Nickelback, and some of you love the Dallas Cowboys, so you are not to be trusted. So I don't know. The Nickelback comment was for you, Lamari. I think my favorite part of traveling is always crossing the state line back into Texas, or since we live in a secondary airport, you know, we have the tiny baby airport that rests so you don't wake it up because it's got one terminal. We're all like, shh, it's baby. It's a baby airport. It's sleeping. Um, but my favorite part is that last connecting flight from one of Texas's big cities, right, or that state line crossing back into Texas. I just love being here. I haven't always loved where I've lived, like the 14 years I lived in Chicago, Will, just saying. Um, but I for sure love where I live now. And I had the fortune or misfortune this week of meeting two pastors here in Austin who hate Austin. And they're crowing about barbecue from Kansas City. And I'm like, your life must be terrible. What would it be like to be here in America's greatest city and not want to be here? So I'm glad to be back after being gone for a week. Not to mention the heart of all that is involved with dropping family off and le you know, leaving them as they get smaller in the rearview mirror and all of those things. So it's really good to be back. I enjoyed last week's live stream. I, uh, we conferred creatively on it, and then I just took my eye off the ball and then just watched the product when we got back to Austin, and it was really, really fun. And it occurred to me that that was the first Sunday that we had done something in the building in so many months I can't even remember, like well before COVID. It would have been whatever the fifth Sunday was that we did that before the beginnings of 2020. So it's been a while. We've been carrying on. We've just been doing what we do, and we've been changing as we go. But that was the first Sunday that we didn't have something actually here in the building. And I, I kind of woke up Sunday morning thinking, I wonder who's out there knocking on the door, like somebody's trying to get in. So thank you, Trey, for telling that story in the, in the way that only you can. You've been here since the beginning, and only you could tell that story that way. And thank you, Sam, for pulling it together creatively. And Caesar, where are you? He's here somewhere. Thank you, Caesar, for all of that time filming and editing. If you didn't watch it, go back and watch it. It's an important part of our story. It's how we got here. I remember, actually, all of those places. Even though I wasn't here for the very, very beginning, the first three and a half years or four years of this church, I was posted to a tiny struggling church plant in, in, in Houston trying to get up on its feet when, when A and C was being hatched. And so I was engaged over there. But I punched my ticket to Austin as soon as I was able in the fall of 2013. Anyway, what a great story we have as a church and what an interesting way to tell it. It was fun to see those places. And for some of you who have just joined us, if you're joining us in the out of town sort of category, I hope you could appreciate the journey that we've been on for the last 13 or so years. More importantly, I hope that you can see how you fit into that story, how actually it relies on you now, on your gifts and on your vision, on your abilities to move forward into the future. I hope you can see that. You know, a story is only as good as your ability to find your way inside it, right? Of course you knew that. That's how stories work. And ours is a good one as a little church, one that I'm proud of, and I hope that the same is true for you. So I've been thinking a lot about who we are and how we got here. I think I always dial those thoughts in when I'm out of town. And it hasn't been an easy story. 13 years is a long time. And I'm guessing you knew that, that there has been some loss and some setbacks and some confusion and some 
decisions that didn't go well. Our story has some of that stuff too, and we don't hide that from you. But on the whole, I see this little experiment, this little church that we're trying to nurture forward, I see it as a gift. A gift that we work hard as a staff not to dilute, not to squander. I think it's on all of our minds all the time. I see that our task as a, as a church, our mission is pretty simple, and in fact, it's ultra simple. It's to get free, and it's to set people free. That's it. That's all there is to it. And in that order, I might add. Should I repeat that since the mic didn't? To get free, and to, I learned that from Joel Osteen. If the mic drops, repeat it, because somebody's going to want you to say that. So. Some of you are like, he learned that from Joel. It's a long story. We'll have coffee later. That's it. That's really the sequence. That is the mission around here, in case you wondered. That's all there is to it. It's got so few moving parts. Freedom experienced and freedom extended. It's as far as it goes. True freedom, of course, is a gift, as you know, freely given to all by God, but like every other gift from God, fully receiving it takes a lifetime. Fully receiving it always is a process. It doesn't just happen overnight. So give yourself a lifetime to unbox what God gives. I don't know what you were told as children, but there will never be a rush to metabolize God. Take a lifetime. Take your time. We have time. So I've been thinking about us, about who we are and what makes us tick, about who we listen to and who we tune out, about where we're headed and why, about the gospel and what it says to us right now in these freighted times. You guys know this about me. I'm going to get to the text here in a second. My favorite words ever collected and compiled. I love so many words, and I love them for different reasons, but I would have to say my favorite words collected and compiled are the ones that we attribute directly to the mouth of Jesus as he taught. He was a stellar teacher. I don't reach for what was said about what Jesus said. I like to just go right to the source, which is also why I don't hover in the thoughts of Paul or Peter or John or James all that much. You see, they focus mostly on churchy issues, which are always somehow less interesting to me than the gospel itself. But as a church, we've been hovering over the letters that Paul has written for the last few weeks now, specifically the letter to those gathered at the, at the city of Ephesus. And I'm finding lots of gospel hidden there too. I actually happen to think we could probably find it anywhere if we look hard enough. It just takes a different lens to find it. Well, the lectionary readings, in case you're not reading ahead and you don't have the app. Wait, there's an app for that? Yep, that was one of the early apps ever built. I remember its first iteration. Anyway, the lectionary readings come to us from the book of James, and they actually started last week when we did the video, and I'd like to begin there, which means we'll be a little out of sequence uh, for a couple of weeks technically, but that's okay. Most of you probably don't care about all of that. It'll all work out in the end, and we'll get ourselves to Advent just as, we, just as the train leaves the depot as it should. So let's read how James opens his letter today, and we'll use these ideas as a foundation for what lies ahead. And he writes, very briefly, James 1.1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. My brothers and sisters, verse 2, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And if you're a musician, you can already hum along the little tune that we added to that in the little video that was on the screen as you walked in the building this morning. Paraphrasing, here's how I might say this. Ha, it's me, James. If you've been forced to leave what's comfortable, 
pay attention, enjoy the hard stuff, it's the only way. That might be a rephrase of what he writes. Wow. For real, James? First of all, who are you, brother James, and do you always move this fast on a first date? <laughs> like, no pleasantries, like no warm-up bands, just boom. Trials of any kind are to be accepted and embraced with joy. Now, maybe you've been reading the Bible a really long time, and you just swallow all this stuff hook, line, and sinker, but this is a weird way to begin. It's a joke, right? Mm. Who actually believes this? Or have you read it so many times that you read it and it just doesn't stick and you're just like, yeah, that's just how he opens. Listen, read it again with fresh eyes. So something to keep in mind, and we're going to be in James for a few weeks now, something to keep in mind as we look at the book of James, it's actually not a book. It's a letter. These guys didn't write books. They wrote letters, and they're different. They function differently. And this one, possibly more than any other piece of the New Testament, enjoys extensive controversy as to who, who wrote it and when it was written. It might be the most disputed book in the New Testament, and that also tells you why I'm interested in it. Well, why would that be? Well, Jesus had two disciples named James. One was the son of Zebedee, also brothers, brother of Peter and John. We, we can figure out who that was. His nickname was James the Greater, for whatever reason. And the other James was the son of Alphaeus, also one of the 12, and his nickname is James the Lesser. And then there's the third James, who's actually the brother of Jesus, who doesn't show up immediately in Jesus' group of disciples, but he shows up eventually, and his nickname is James the Just, for whatever reason. So which one of these three James wrote the book of James, or the letter of James? Well, there's no consensus on this. In fact, some church fathers wanted this little letter excluded from the Bible altogether, Martin Luther among them. And I actually think that it was written well after either of these three James could have chronologically possibly written it. That's what I think. I don't know. We could be wrong. I think it's at least possible that one of these three James started this letter, put it down, or died, or was martyred, or forgotten, and it was picked up later and finished by someone else in his name. Anyway, if this little letter didn't say such jarring and provocative things, then I'd probably tune it out too. But there are some big ideas here that appear nowhere else in the text with this level of candor and this level of clarity. Anyhow, it certainly has quite an opening. You know, for fun, you can sit on your, your Google box and just type in opening lines of great novels. There's some great ones out there. But this one, this one kind of hangs up in, in the top for me. What an opener. No time wasted at all. Thank you, James. All trials are to be considered effective immediately as a source of joy. All hardships are to be welcomed because they move us, he will go on to say. They reduce us. They strengthen us somehow in essential and necessary ways. And even if you put a bouncy little rhythm to it and some super creepy background pre-1995 graphics and you make it a children's song, this is abrupt. This is, in fact, I would argue, counterintuitive. Let me attempt another paraphrase here. Be happy when you're tested, when you're stretched, and when you struggle, when you're tempted. It will build your capacity to tolerate more tests and stretches and struggles. In fact, while you're at it, find the joy in it because it initiates a sequence that leads us to freedom, to wisdom, which is just another way of saying leads us to being mature or complete or lacking in nothing. 
The idea is there is a sequence that leads us to release, to real living. And if you can manage to not reject that sequence, you're on your way somewhere. And it's going to begin with hard stuff, and that's the point. The hard goes somewhere we want to go. The pain leads us into the very dark places we most need to visit. The same places, ironically, that we work so diligently to avoid. James seems to say, hey, friends, embrace the suck. Way. Which is the moment I think I might actually agree with Martin Luther for once. Martin Luther and I agree on very few things other than beer. I mean, we could always just rip this out like Robin Williams does at Dead Poet Society. Just rip out the Pritchard article on poetry. Just rip it out, y'all. You remember the movie? Only Lamar and I are old enough to remember that movie. We could just rip it out. I mean, really, James? Are you sure about this? Now I'm wondering how hard would his life have been for him to write this? Well, James wrote this, I'm guessing, because the brothers and sisters to whom he writes, to whom he addressed these remarks, must have confused trials and tribulations with punishment. Now, hear me closely. As if suffering was some result of having done something wrong. Yeah, I'm super glad that we don't think that way these days, except that we totally do. But no, says James, be joyful when you're worked over, when you're overdrawn, when you're poked and pressed. Rejoice in being tested and tweaked and taunted, and don't be fooled into thinking that God is out to get you. This is actually, if you must know, a gift. He will go on to say, something to be received, something to be accepted, something to be celebrated for its undeniable capacity to produce goodness and wisdom in us. So skipping forward a bit, James makes this provocative claim further down in chapter one. He writes, every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And this will probably be the only occasion all year that I prefer the reading in the NIV, Don. I just prefer the NRSV, but the NIV says it this way, and I prefer this. It says, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. My translation of this, all things that come to us from the originator of light, from Father Photon, that's the word in Greek, can be trusted as good. I think the idea here is everything that pushes us towards uh, our deeper selves, towards our truer true, the truest of truths, everything that summons from us the realest real by building muscle and capacity for wisdom and freedom, all of this should be considered as having a divine origin. It comes from God. So James opens up his letter saying hard things are to be embraced joyfully, and he bookends that with this thought in verse 17, anything that comes from God is perfect and good. I wonder, what belongs in the middle of these two ideas? Because I just jumped from the first couple of verses in James 1 to some towards the end. What belongs in the middle of these? What specifically would James have been thinking of? Now remember, this is a letter, which means that he was aiming at something specific, There was some issue, some deficiency, some misconception, some bad idea about God or community or the world, something, some particular way of being in the world that needed to be upgraded, that needed to be corrected, that would have been why he wrote. And even if we don't know which of the three possible Jameses this could have been, we can assume that he was a respected leader in the church in Jerusalem as well as throughout the Christian world, why he offers his first name only and he addresses himself to all Jews. 
We don't have time to read the entire first chapter, but the gist and the flow is something like this. He opens by saying, hey, it's me, James, and consider it all joy when you're tested because being tested leads to freedom and wholeness. So enjoy the workout. Then he goes on to say, this kind of wholeness, this kind of life integration, also known as wisdom, if it's something that you're lacking, just ask God. He'll give you more. And of course, the implication here is that God will freely give you the hardships you need to learn how to release, to let go, to free fall. How many people pray for those? Not many. To let go until you learn to find the joy in the process of being tested. That's his next thought. And in subsequent chapters, we're going to get a clearer picture of exactly what sort of community breakdowns James is is aiming at directly. But here, James lays this foundation already in chapter 1. Struggle and humility, even poverty, must not be seen as a curse from God. In fact, they may even be a gift if you can follow James's logic. Now, I know that's hard. I know that's hard. And then in verses 9 through 11, he'll go on and he'll get super practical, telling the poor to rejoice in their newfound gain, which of course is to perfectly counterbalance and complement the rejoicing of the rich who are encouraged to find joy in the giving away of what they thought was theirs exclusively so that the poor could rise and the rich could become concerned and they could all settle at a new level called joy. And I don't know what you see here but I find it hard not to see a description of the potential socioeconomics of the followers of Jesus. Notice, there is no virtue in poverty, there is no virtue in wealth per se, but in this new level of mutual concern and nurture set by sharing all things in common. Preach that gospel in America and you'll end up on a one-way ticket somewhere. In other words, hear this, joy is the movement towards one another, but neither party is likely to find this easy Both the haves and the have-nots will fight this, will resist to lay it all down in the end, and yet that's what the gospel will require. The point is, the only way to wisdom and freedom and truly living if James the Great or James the Lesser or just James the Just is to be believed is through release and acceptance, through resisting resistance itself. Oh, friends, this feels like a big idea to me. I don't know about you. This changes everything. It's not the destination, James is going to say. It's the sequence. It's the movement towards one another. It's learning to trust that those things that are out of our control anyway can be trusted. That's what matters now. So what is he getting at, friends? James wrote to a different century. We could just say he does, he's not talking to us, and so let's just rip Pritchard right out of the, the, the poetry textbook. We could do that. He's not writing to our century. He's writing to a different culture, but to people much like us, I would argue, who resisted the process, who hate the workout, who fight the wind and who paddle against the current, who resist the long road, the long, slow road to wisdom. We are those people too. (laughs) He's helping us answer the following epistemic question, even if our lips can't yet shape these words. And here's the question. How do we metabolize all the hard? How do we make peace with the process by which, through which, and at the end of which we become softer and wiser and more like God? I mean, isn't that the real question we're asking in 2021? Teachers, healthcare professionals, parents. 
I think James is saying anything that makes us less resistant, more like love, more attuned to God is ultimately a gift. Which has me thinking, if James is right, whichever James this is, I'm not sure anymore how to define a gift. What qualifies as a gift in your mind? For something to be a gift, do we have to want it? Do we have to have asked for it? Must we receive it for it to be a gift? How do we receive and celebrate something we'd rather reject? What if it almost kills us? Could it still be a gift? Count it all joy, James? Really? Now wait, I know what's wrong. Here's what's wrong. James couldn't possibly have seen a global pandemic from where he sat in history. He could not have seen 2020 or 2021 from where he was. Surely all doesn't include COVID, unless it does. But how do we embrace this, friends? I certainly didn't ask for this, and I'm guessing you didn't either. You know what's the hardest part about this for me? We talked about this this week as a staff. The hardest part is that they just keep moving the finish line. Imagine carrying the football towards an end zone that just keeps moving. They just keep moving it. I don't know about you, but I thought that there was a mythical milestone tied to September when kids went back to school. I thought something of this would be over. I thought we would have arrived, and yet they just keep moving it, and it keeps getting harder. No one is asking about normal anymore. What kind of crappy gift is this anyway? I don't want this garbage. I'm over it. I don't know about you, but I'm over it. Wisdom or no wisdom, I'm tired, and I know that you are too. So in truth, I don't have the faintest clue what you're going through. I don't know if your heart is related to career or to parenting or to teaching or to learning or to marriage or to health or to finances. I don't know what your heart is. I don't know if you've been tempted to believe that God is against you or that life itself cannot be trusted. I don't know if you are actively trying to reject or eject or escape from or get away from the process that you feel stuck in. I don't know what you're facing. I'm only just, and by just, I mean barely beginning to see with the remotest clarity what I'm facing, what my staff is facing, what our church might be facing. What I do know is that the only way through is through. The only way to freedom and wisdom is to ride this all the way out. The only way to be complete, to be mature, to be lacking in nothing is to accept where we are, to accept what we have, to accept who we are becoming through all of this hard as a gift from God. Dr. Shafali Tsubari calls this the as-isness of life. Can we accept life as it is or will we fight it? Now hear me, either way, both acceptance and resistance lead to the same end eventually. Don't be overly concerned with what you've had to do to survive. Either way, resistance or acceptance will take us home. If we choose faith as our guide, encouraged by James in the letter he writes, acceptance is the way. But if we don't and fatigue becomes our teacher because of our insistence on resisting, it's okay. That will take us home too eventually. Both will work. Well, we'll go a dozen different places with James before he's done writing. 
But for today, if we can accept it, just know that this is the foundation that he's asking his reader to accept. A gift is anything that takes us somewhere that we needed to go anyway. Even if we didn't ask for it, and we don't actually want it, even if we look at it and don't unwrap it, it can still be a gift. It can still be perfect. It can still bring us the light that we need. This final thought as we wrap. James begins his remarks in his only letter that he wrote by addressing the inside world, the interior world. Think about it. In a world that thinks that all of our problems are on the outside, James says the sequence that leads to real freedom and release is inside. That's where he begins. Wisdom is the result of endurance, which is the result of accepting the hard. And how is this good news for us today? Well, would it feel like gospel to you if I told you that your most significant life work will be to understand and accept the sequence that grows you up? Would it sound like good news if I told you that adults are hard to come by and you know very few and the only way there is to lean into the process that grows us up and that that is your primary work? Would that feel like the gospel today? Would it feel like good news to be invited to embrace the wind that's propelling you sideways, taking you somewhere you need to go? Would it be a relief if I reminded you that you don't have to fix all that's wrong with the suffering world, with our struggling schools, with a busted climate, with bad laws and broken politics? Would it feel like relief if I told you you didn't have to fix it all? Would you appreciate being reminded this morning that our job is primarily to deal with these external circumstances as they summon something deep from within us? Oh, that's our work. Would that feel like good news? James will go on to address real issues with community, and we will have to do the same when we are ready, but not until we embrace this truth. We are our own work. Our work is to become wise and to remain free. By increasing the kind of endurance that allows us to stay in the hard, knowing it's the only way. Is it hard? It is. Will it take us where we need to go? It will, if we let it. Oh, I pray that we will. Pray with me now. Lord God of the wind and waves, we pray for strength and endurance and trust and clarity and hope and patience, but ultimately for wisdom. Teach us to accept the process that takes us there. In your name we pray. Amen, friends. Why don't you join me on your feet? Some of you wonder, why didn't the preacher pray very long? Y'all, Jesus said two things about prayer. You know this, right? He said, don't do it publicly and don't use a lot of words. Some of you didn't know that. That's why praying in public is not my favorite way to spend time together. And it's simp- it, to me, it, it was the grandstand of the great impress- impressive people of my youth that wanted to re-preach what they just preached poorly. So they're going to pray it. I don't know, y'all. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It's a tough time. I drove back down interstate, whatever, through wherever is between here and Chicago. It's a bunch of whatever. Thinking about this one thing, I think as a community, it's time that we name how hard it is. Maybe, listen, 
you do the meanest things to yourself in your head, don't you? First thing you do is you look at the headlines and you think, well, our life is amazing compared to other parts of the world, so we don't get to say that this is hard. I'm telling you, you wouldn't treat a good friend that way. Don't speak to yourself that way. This is hard, y'all. This is hard. We've now moved into that extra time where there's no clock ticking in a soccer match and you're just literally up against whatever clock the referee has on the field. No one knows when this ends and we're here and it's hard and it's really hard. And so naming that for us, I think, will help normalize the reality. It's why we're on fumes. It's why we're losing, losing our patience. But look back. Look back even now. Think of what you've learned this year. Think of the things that have been revealed to you, about you, through you. I don't want to roll the clock back, to be frank. I just need strength for tomorrow. The good news is we don't have to fix it. We just got to stay present. So let's gather as we do every week around that simple reminder that God is as near as the bread we eat, as the wine we drink. He is literally in our bodies in those ways. We are literally the unfolding, the becoming of the material God in the world in this Eucharistic exchange. I know that's deep. You don't have to believe all of that, but just move with me in this direction. At the base of the windows, there will be a very simple, right? Yeah, I can't, I, can't, I see two windows that don't have them. Well, at some of the windows, there are some communion baskets that have a little grab-and-go cracker and juice in them. And so our invitation to you is to be Reminded in this moment how near God is. You know, so much of what we do is not tied to what we were asked to do by Jesus himself, but this one thing is, and so we gather around it. And so we tell the story when we do, and we say on the night when he was betrayed, he lifted bread to heaven, he gave thanks, and he told his disciples that this will be my flesh, and if you don't eat this, then we don't have a common understanding. And to complicate things even more, he lifted his cup and said, this wine, this represents the blood, my blood, which is the signing of this covenant. He invited them to accept that reality that somehow three years of walking and teaching and learning and eating and fishing and swimming and resting with him did not prepare them for. And that was what he asked. And so I would ask you to do the same thing. Understand the shocking nearness of God to you. You might say, well, you don't know where I've been. You don't know the decision. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The table is open for you. It will always be open for you. The moment the table is closed is the moment I walk away from all this work because it can't be closed. It can't be. That was self-protective mechanisms we taught ourselves to keep our tribe safe, and it was never safe. That was less than the capital G gospel. So in the next song, find the moment, approach the table, partake of those elements. If you're joining us from home, whatever you're about to consume, be reminded that that, 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 that is in your body to strengthen you for the work of becoming more like God in the world. And so pray with me these words.